Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. We're basking in the afterglow of a brilliant UK championship. Oh, we're basking, all right. Uh, terrific week in York, nine days, which culminated in... Mark Allen beating Ding Junhui 10-7 from 6-1 down to become UK champion for the first time. He's the 13th player to win back-to-back ranking titles, third ranking final in a row, uh, clearly in ranking events the player of the season and uh, very, very impressive all-round performance. He set his stall out how he was going to play, I think, all week, which is more of a kind of percentage game maybe than we've seen before from him. And he didn't panic when he was 6-1 down. I think he believed in his game plan. And uh, in the evening, he started to make the breaks, which he hadn't done in the afternoon. Ding, of course, had four centuries in the final. I mean, time was, you know, that would be enough, more than enough to win, probably quite easily. But Mark Allen, just tough. And certainly, I think when any match goes close, and we saw this against Jack Lazowski as well in the semi-finals, when any match goes close, you kind of fancy Allen. The bottle he has is something you can't really teach. I think you're either born with that or you're not. He is... He's a tough character. He's a great player. And, well, I, I was very impressed not only with just how he played and, and how he how he won, but his comments afterwards saying, right, back on the practice table. Um, he's going to German Masters qualifying. But by the time you hear this, we'll know whether he's beaten Peter Lines or not in Leicester. If he loses, it's not a great surprise <laughs> because there might be a hangover, quite literally, after a Sunday. But actually, the attitude he's shown is, no, I want to press on. I want to press on and not just sort of celebrate a couple of wins, but keep going and try and have, well, I think it's already his most successful season ever, but build up towards, of course, the World Championship, where he's never really done anything. One semi-final 2009, clearly his new attitude and just the toughness in his game suggests he can now become World Champion. It's a long way till the World Championship. It's five months away in April, so, you know, it's a bit early to start sort of tipping him now. <clears throat> Excuse me. But clearly a great performance and a great week. I've thoroughly enjoyed being at the Barbican in York. A lovely city to be there, uh, in any way, but when well, the snooker's on, obviously, even better. And what I really liked, well, it actually was just the, the, the feeling in the crowd. It was a really good atmosphere. Not, didn't get sort of too rowdy. Just a lot, it was lively, but it was positive. And that's the thing, actually, the positivity. What an antidote to when you sort of go on social media and these joyless balls who just want to complain about everything. When people actually come and they've paid their own money, 
they're determined to have a good time and they do and I was walked out on Sunday nights half 11 when it finished and it's sort of this, this northern lady she, she was walking along with a friend I, I just overheard them saying she said oh I love that she said uh, mind you I said my husband won't be happy I said I'll be back in time for I'm a celebrity which of course was on much earlier in the evening but no it, it, I was very impressed by the fact so many people stayed to the end they weren't going to leave it dis- despite the fact it was getting late and just the good feeling there was and that was enhanced of course by all the innovations backstage in the queue zone and just a really good week and this is what we need more of I guess we can't just have it in the, the sort of real big tournaments we need it hopefully in every event we've spoken before on the podcast about the fan experience if we can get more of this at all the events then you know snooker really is in a good place in terms of the, the fan experience and uh, you know I, I have uh, nothing bad to say about the tournament at all I, I really enjoyed it I thought uh, the, uh, the, the standard of snooker was high it was interesting we didn't have a 140 break in the whole tournament apart from in qualifying so Chow Yu-Peng won the high break um so, you know, at times the standard could have been higher, but at times it was breathtaking. And Jack Mazowski's four centuries in a row in that match with Sean Murphy, who, by the way, then made one himself. That was terrific stuff. So we had a real mix. We had the sort of some tactical snooker. We had a lot of big breaks. It was just great. I thought it was a great week. Um, and, uh, well, let's get into the emails to find out what, uh, what everyone else thought. Becoming tradition, we start with Alpha Bonzi because he's always very direct. So this is what he says. After Mark Allen lifts the trophy in York, my three quick questions this week are, number one, I'll answer these one at a time, uh, Alpha, where does this year's tournament leave the sports relationship with the BBC and Eurosport? Well, (laughs) I don't don't think it's changed in any way. It was a very good relationship before. They've both got long-term contracts. I think they're both delighted with the figures and how the week went. And, uh, well, put it this way, it's it's no worse (laughs) than it was. Uh, Number two, has the UK regained any of the prestige it's lost in recent years? due to the Masters and Tour Championship? I think the answer to that is yes. I think that the focus on quality over quantity, just having the two tables, was a, a good move. I think the one thing people have said, and, and Jimmy White said this actually at the weekend, obviously it used to be longer matches, best of 17s. Now, I personally wouldn't have that from the start, but if it could, if there could be a slight tweak where maybe from the quarterfinals onwards the match could get longer, personally I would like that. But obviously, we already mentioned the broadcasters. Maybe they just want to finish every session, you know. So you have to balance the two. Uh, the audiences seem to enjoy the format. Not to say they wouldn't enjoy the longer format. That's maybe the only change. But yeah, it definitely felt like a bigger tournament, and and the UK Championship less cluttered, felt more elite and therefore more prestigious. So I think the changes did work. And number three, Alpha says the current players joining the BBC commentary team shouldn't they be practicing? <laughs> Well, of course, this all came to a head on the Friday because the three they used, Sean Murphy, Joe Perry and Mark Allen, all actually made the quarterfinals, which meant they couldn't commentate. Uh, Rob Walker was sort of drafted in. Um, I, I, listen, I think people have different views on this. I think some people feel it's a bit odd to have players who are playing in the tournament commentating because there's a theory that maybe it, it sort of threatens the neutrality of what they're going to say if they're still involved themselves. I have to say, though... I didn't hear Mark Allen, but the, the other two, Sean and Joe, you, you know, you wouldn't have known they were playing in the tournament. They just commentated properly. And they're two good pros, those two. Sean, in particular, has taken to commentary very, very quickly. Um, and, you know, he, he's clearly, that's going to be his career when his playing career does finally come to an end. He's got in early. And I said, I actually saw him in York and I said this to him. This is nothing new, players playing in the tournament, commentating. Dennis Taylor did this years ago. 40 years ago, Dennis was commentating when he was a top player. Um, specifically for ITV and John Virgo joined the BBC team when he was still you know a top player 
Uh, obviously, more recent years, Ken Doherty and, uh, and indeed Stephen Hendry. So it's nothing new, um, but it was kind of funny that it all came to a head, um, you know, when they all reached the quarterfinals. And they did have time to practice. You know, they, they, they're not on literally all day. There's time to practice. Um, I suppose that the thing is, I mean, everyone's different. Some players would not go, would not entertain the prospect of, of, of doing media work while they're playing. But there's a lot of hanging around at tournaments, actually. And a lot of times you, you are actually just in the players' room watching the match or you might be in the hotel watching the match. So there's, there's an argument to say, yeah, why not just go and, if you're offered commentary, go and do it. The only thing I would say is I do wonder about commentating on the day you're playing. I mean, afterwards is fine, <laughs> but beforehand... I'm not so sure. But anyway, that's up to the, the guys and they all, like I say, didn't hear Mark Allen, but uh, they all, they all did uh, a good job as far as I could see. Uh, now then, who else have we got here? Callum Law has done a little review for us. He says, I just wanted to say what a terrific week of snooker we saw in York. To me, the UK Championship has re-established itself as one of the game's premier events. The venue looked great, the crowd seemed good all week, and for the players that managed to get through, I think having to qualify helped them. A lot of the seeds went out in the last 32, and to me, a lot of the victorious qualifiers look sharper, having come through tough qualifying matches to reach the venue. I wouldn't class myself as a Jimmy White fan, but as a lover of snooker, it was great to see him back on the big stage. It was also great to see Ding Jun Wee reminding us of his talents. The final got away from him, with the first frame of the evening session perhaps a turning point. Ding was in and set for another big break, but poor positional play let him down. Every credit to Mark Allen, he seemed to get better and better as the final session went on. It's hard to pinpoint the difference in Allen, but there seems to be an added intangible quality to his game in terms of the shots he plays and his mental approach. The only thing I would change about the UK Championship as it is now would be a return to best of 17 for the semi-finals, but clearly that would mess with the format, so I understand why it's likely it won't happen. I think the way the UK was this year is a massive improvement. If it's meant to be one of the game's three majors, as WST and the BBC want us to believe, then it should be special, and this tournament most certainly was. All very positive from Callum, and yes, all, all, all fair comment. Yeah, Mark Allen's mental approach definitely is a difference because his game's always been there. Um, but he's, he's working with someone, I think he's spoken about that. He's just happier as well off table, you know. The, the weight loss has been over sort of stated, I think. That's happened. Good luck to him. But also he's engaged again. He's happier in his personal life. He's sort of got, got, got things sorted out off the table. And Mark has always been very open about you know, the, the way he's spoken about his own life and his personal life. He's been a sort of an open book. Um, and, you know, he's, he's admitted he's, he's struggled, but now he seems to be, well, clearly clearly seems to be back uh, enjoying himself again. And uh, we're seeing that in his snooker. Richard Hamilton from Edinburgh. First time caller. That's, that, these are his words. Uh, with the revamp of the UK Championship and elevating to feel like a prestigious event again, I had an, my idea a while back for a change and wondered what your thoughts were. In years gone by, there was a million-pound prize fund for winning all four home nations, which was never won. Now, because we have a kazoo series for the top 32, 16 and 8 players on the one-year list, actually, I should say it's not actually kazoo, um, they're not sponsoring that, but it's the Players Series, it's the, the World Grand Prix Players Championship and Tour Championship. Uh, anyway, Richard says, and the Bet Victor Series for the shootout and European mainland events, I thought a series could be created around the home nations events. It would require some schedule changes, but what I thought of was a money list across all four Home Nations events, and the top 32 would contest the UK Championship. I personally feel in years gone by, the Scottish Open in particular has been diminished, given it followed the UK most years, and winners generally pull out. And I feel this approach will give more prestige to these events, and maybe get the top players more incentive to play them all. Any thoughts you have would be appreciated. Richard, thank you. I'm not quite sure whether you mean this would literally be the way you qualify for the UK Championship, as opposed to pre-qualifying, or whether this would be 
in, in effect, a new event. Um, if it was a new event, it sounds a great idea. Obviously, you need the usual things, broadcaster sponsor, <laughs> prize money, venue, all that. If it's a way to qualify specifically for the UK Championship, I'm not so sure about that. I think um, because the UK Championship has nothing to do with those events. Now, there is a kind of common sense to what you say because they're the home nations. They're the nations of the UK to feed into the UK Championship. That does make some sort of sense, but I think it would create a bit of uproar if you qualified for what is the second biggest ranking event on the circuit based on only four other events rather than all the ranking events over two years, which is how it's done at the moment um, in terms of where you're seeded and so on, where you come in. Um, I think the separate qualifying in Ponds Forge in Sheffield worked really well. I quite like that. I mean, I was there commentating and, and worked on Judgment Day, uh, Judgment Day, the, the, the last round of qualifying. Yeah, and, and I thought that worked really, really well. So I, I'm not sure that using the home nations to provide the players for the UK Championship um, would be where I would go, not least because, of course, the whole point of the new format was to get the top 16 at the venue, which you wouldn't get under this format because guaranteed some of them would, would, would end up missing out. Um, top 16, 16 qualifiers, I think that's a good model for this tournament. But as in, if there was a new event created um, based on the home nations, listen, I'm, I'm all for new events, so that would be all to the good. Mark and John. Now, I met Mark and John um, in the hotel. It was raining. Uh, not in the hotel, but <laughs> but um, anyway. Well, They say, well done to everyone involved in laying on the UK Championship this year. We spent a few days in York and were very impressed with all the extra effort made for the fans. In the Q-Zone area, we watched and interacted with players such as Judd, Lazowski, Bingham, and one of our favourites, Jamie Clark. What a credit to the sport they all were. Inside the Barbican, there were ample toilets... Things of interest to look at, a photo booth, and all the staff and stewards went above and beyond to be friendly and helpful. The whole event was fantastic. Thank you for the photo we got with you. Now we finally met. It really will be going on display in our new snooker room. Well, that's uh, that's your prerogative, of course. <laughs> but uh, thank you. Yes, well, I mean, and that's just great to hear the feedback, you know, because we haven't always heard great feedback from tournaments. But that sounds like Mark and John would go again next year to York. That sounds like a winner for them. And that's what we want. People pay their own money. And it's not just... And they live in London. It's not just the tickets. It's the travel. It's the, it's the accommodation. You've got to feed yourself. It's not cheap, you know. It's not cheap. It's, it's, you've got to um, spend a bit of money to go to these tournaments. So you're getting back value, is what you're saying. And in particular, you mentioned there the players. We should... Um, I, I haven't got a full list of everyone who did the demonstrations and the coaching sessions... But credit to all of them who did do it, and you mentioned some there. I know that the Judd Trump and Jack Mazowski one went down particularly well because obviously they're just great shot makers and kind of quite exciting characters to, to watch on a snooker table. But to all the guys who took part in that, well done to them and well done to Will Snooker Tour for laying the whole thing on because I've heard nothing but good things standing in that viewing area, just being close to the action and not just watching matches but actually seeing how players practice and the little routines they do and them giving you advice and at one stage... You know, Judd handed his cue to someone and <laughs> let them play a few shots. So, yeah, it, it, it was a it was a really good thing to see. Well done to the players for taking part, and uh, like I say, well done to World Snooker Tour for actually listening to some of the feedback, including on this podcast when we had our fan special, and actually incorporating it and saying, okay, what can we do to improve the experience? They they listened, they acted, and it went down really well. Now, not everyone is uh, necessarily on board with the changes. Jarrah Warman watching in Duluth, Minnesota. Greetings once again from America. I probably won't be the only one to notice this, but it looks like one downside to the new UK Championship format is the amount of upsets in the first round. Five of the top eight in the rankings have lost. I imagine this is due in great degree to the qualifiers coming in with great recent form. I'm now less enthusiastic about the format as I was initially. 
Well, you know, that's that's your prerogative, of course. To, I, I didn't see any problem. I like Shocks. Um, you don't want every top player to go out, I don't think, but I think Shocks great interest. And Sam Craigie, I mean, he was one of the stars of the tournament. Um, he had a really good run to the, uh, to the quarterfinals, played really well. Kind of suggested he could go on now, and I mean, he's already beaten Steve Maguire in the, in the German Masters qualifier. Suggested he can go on and, and push on and, and have maybe his most successful season. I think it's good to see a few. New faces. Jamie Clark was mentioned. Um, he beat Mark Williams, albeit Mark was uh, <laughs> had a, a dicky tummy. I think is the polite way of putting it, um, and I believe he still does a week on, um, which uh, we, we wish him well. But anyway, uh, yeah, well, okay. Not not everyone likes to see upsets, but uh, you'll get upsets. I think in any format, though, um, it was less likely in the original format with the flat one to eight. But then, of course, players had to sort of slog their way through to the last thirty-two, and we might have lost a few along the way. But anyway, you know, completely. Uh, Entitled to, to say that now. Joe Richards has asked an interesting question here, which uh, which I was discussing with uh, with someone actually at the venue. He says, "I hope you enjoyed the UK Championship. I've got a curious question. I'd like you to re- apply your wonderful level head- headedness to, please. Why are players in snooker judged by the number of ranking titles they've won? Surely it should be simple. Surely it should simply be the number of titles. For example, the history books will say Ronnie O'Sullivan hasn't won a single ranking title this season, where, whereas he's won two of the biggest tournaments of the season by a mile." I think the ranking title isn't a great one, especially when there's so many more ranking titles these days. I think they should just judge players by overall titles. Also, let's say Jack Lazowski won the Masters. Commentators will still be saying Jack Lazowski has won zero ranking titles, whereas they'll say Dave Gilbert has won, but Lazowski's achievement would be far superior. I wonder where the whole categorisation obsession with ranking titles come from. Uh, I'm loving the podcast, keep up the good work. I think snooker scene podcast and talking snooker pod should combine and create a super podcast. Imagine how massive that podcast would be. It'd be long, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, well, of course, we do come together at Christmas, uh, like, like uh, sort of an armistice. armistice. Uh, and last year, it was long, and I, uh, I was drinking that horrible wine. But we're, we're drifting from the point here, which is the ranking titles. It's a very good question. I mean, if, if, if we were going to assess players on every title won, Steve Davis is still top of that list, because he won a lot of... Uh, invitation events and, and, and long-forgotten tournaments back in the day, in the 80s. Here's what I think, OK? I think ranking titles have become the measure um, because of the way the circuit has developed. If you go back 40 years, there were very few. You had the World Championship, and then a few started to be introduced. But they were a few, and for several years, you know, you had four, five, six. And they were, they were prestigious because of that, because there were so few. So if you won a ranking title, it was a major title. And without sort of... Restart. <laughs> I know I say this most weeks, but without restarting the Triple Crown debate, this was back then the measure of a major title. It was a ranking tournament. The Masters was not considered one of the majors back then because the ranking titles had that sense of prestige because of their rarity. If you won one, it was considered a big achievement. So like the British Open, the Mercantile Classic, the International, the Grand Prix, these were the, the tournaments as well as the World and the UK Championships that you really wanted to win. Now, of course, what's happened in more recent years, as you've identified, Joe, is that there's far more of them. Um, and, you know, we count a ranking title as being equal to one another. So winning the World Championship, that's one. Winning the shootout, that's one. Of course, they're very different. Uh, we know that. And some ranking tournaments feel more prestigious than others. For example, tournaments with a two-session final as opposed to, you know, being a best of seven or, or one session. Um, so the question is, I suppose, what you're saying is should we continue to sort of go to ranking titles first. Here's what, here's the, 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 the sort of argument for that, and I was talking to someone about this, and they made the point, the reason ranking titles are still considered to be uh, an important measure 
is that they're tournaments everyone can play in. There are certain events people can't play in. Uh, for example, you know, the Masters is with the top 16. Now, obviously, you, you, everyone's got the chance to qualify for it, but there's going to be most of the tour, we're talking, well, 115 players on the tour will not be in the Masters this year. It's just the top 16 in the world, um, as of now, by the way, rather than when it should be, which is after the English Open. But that's another argument. Um, so, yeah, that, that's it, really. I think, you know, there's a lot of tournaments where only the top players can get in, and then that obviously... And they get in them because they're the top players, but that then boosts their total, uh, maybe artificially. Um, but of course, the, the thing with ranking titles is, I mean, Steve Davis, you know, if there'd been this many tournaments in, in his heyday, he would have won at least probably 50. Same with Hendry. Um, so that list is kind of, it's not comparing in a way like for like. But I think ranking titles, because they're uh, events where everyone has played in, are, con- are still considered to be the measure. Now then, there is a slight caveat to that. There are now ranking events that not everyone plays in. I mean, the Tour Championship is for eight players. So that does muddy the waters a little bit. Um, the Champion of Champions, we actually, for ITV, I put together um, some stats where we actually did list or, or, or name the number of titles everyone had won rather than just ranking titles because it seemed for that event to be more relevant because some people qualified winning non-ranking events. But you raise an interesting point, and uh, anyone else with any ideas about that, why should, or should ranking titles still be kind of the first thing we look at? Because, yeah, the Masters, the Champion of Champions, these tournaments are big to win, and, and, and Mark Allen, for example, has won them both, but they're not uh, included in the in the now eight uh, ranking events he's won. And then we had uh, someone asking last week about why a game of snooker is called a frame. Tim Sandal has come up with an answer. He says, in all these things, there's no consensus. However, inspired by your question, I've searched through the British newspaper archive curated by the British Library. The earliest reference to a frame I can find is back in 1908, 19 years prior to the First World Championship taking place. The reference appears in Sporting Life, published on the 5th of June, 1908, on page 8. This is very uh, exacting. The the major news organisations that don't have this level of of, uh, sort of integrity. But anyway, we continue. The article is headlined Billiards, Snooker Honours Divided, John Roberts v Tom Reese for £100. Here, the first thing of interest... By the way, £100 back then, that's a lot of money. Anyway, here, the first thing of interest is that any reference to snooker is placed under the heading Billiards. The reference to a frame is in the context of a frame of reds. The triangle used to set the red balls up in a pyramid formation was traditionally made of wood and often had the triangle shape contained with a square. Hence, frame is a reference to containing the red balls in the required formation prior to the commencement of play. Later newspapers published in 1908 and 1909 confirm this, mentioning frame of reds and the frame is listed as a billiard table accessory. The Sporting Chronicle, for instance, describes a player smashing up a frame of reds in a game of snooker pool. The The player bashing the balls was one Edward Diggle, who's mentioned in Clive Everton's entertaining A History of Billiards book as a languid wry man with a casual half-upright playing style with both legs inelegantly bent, which is classic Everton. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, I mean, that's that's pretty uh, thorough, Tim. And, uh, well, uh, you know, we've got no other... Uh, we've got no other... No reason to doubt your uh, your view on that. I think somebody... Someone else, actually... And uh, maybe I should have looked this up before I started, but someone else got in contact with the same... Uh, uh, explanation. Um, so whoever that was, I'll, I'll find it eventually. But whoever that was, thank you. And uh, that, well, we'll go with that. We've got nothing else to, um, or no reason not to go with it. So we'll, we'll go with that. And uh, thank you for taking the time to look it up. I think by now people know that uh, the, the, this podcast is not really planned. So we go back to the UK Championship now. And Kerry Richards, 
I've just watched Karen Wilson's outrageous fluke black against Mark Allen. jumped out of the corner pocket, rolled up the rail and into the middle. Now, this is a very niche question. Would this have been a foul had it hit a block of chalk, where sometimes you see a player leave their chalk on the rail between shots? Well, I would say yes. Um, I'm not a referee, and I'm, not, I, I, I'm sure this is in the rules somewhere, but I would say it would have to be. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I don't think it's ever happened. So it's one of those things referees, they, they don't mind a drink, and you know, that's fine. We, 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 you know, we, all, uh, we all enjoy a drink now and again. Um, and, and they sit around uh, late at night discussing things that can never happen. Um, but then delighted to know the rule if it does. And occasionally it does. Um, there was that incident years ago at the Crucible where Graham Dot put his fist in the pocket to stop the white. And Mark Selby uh, picked the white up thinking he could put it in the D. And it, because he hadn't left the bed of the table, he was fouled by the referee Alan Chamberlain. Uh, and Alan Chamberlain, I can tell you, he's been waiting a long time <laughs> for, for that to happen. So we'll see. I, I suspect that is a foul, but if any referees are listening... Maybe they could clear that up. Uh, and uh, there is another one here about the UK Championship, actually. Kevin Booth, he went along. So, uh, now, he wrote this uh, after the initial Monday evening. He'd been to, to York. He said, I emailed after arriving back on the Monday night after been, having been in York for the first Sunday. All day. OK, so he went, yeah, so he went Sunday and Monday afternoon. Great changes, in my opinion. The set is great. I was up in the balcony today and must say a slight complaint was that the Eurosport commentary area is heard from the seats in the balcony. This is nothing against you and Neil, as I love your commentary, but surely they could soundproof the area. It was just a little distraction to some spectators. Uh, some would say, lucky to get it, Kevin. But anyway, I, I take your point. Yes, it, it wasn't completely soundproof, you're quite correct. We did have one chap come up and basically bang on the door. <laughs> but uh, other people seemed to enjoy it. We had a few thumbs up, so, uh, you know, it's a little added bonus. Anyway, Kevin continues, great to see the Q-Zone area and the walls with the history on too. Unfortunately, I missed the final for the first time in York due to the World Cup. One of the feedback is that while fans are in the arena today, World Snooker Tour put the Northern Ireland 2023 tickets on sale. This isn't fair on fans who attend events and can't go online while in the auditorium. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a fair point, that. I mean, I think, I, I, I think I'm um, right to say that the tickets, they usually go on sale in the mornings. Of course, there's no morning play. Now, I can't swear that that was the case with the, the, the Northern Ireland uh, Open, but uh, in general, yes, uh, you know, it, it should be fair for all. But I think, I think it's usually 10 in the morning, anyway. Luke Bishop. Now, we had this thing last year about, uh, is Luca Purcell, does he have the worst record at the Crucible? <laughs> Sorry, Luca, if you're listening, but this is what was being discussed. And uh, Luke Bishop writes, I was wondering who the converse would be, the best record or best achievement at the Crucible, but the worst record elsewhere. I think all the runners-up have won ranking tournaments elsewhere, so we look at the semi-finalists. Gary Wilson jumps out as someone who's made the single table but never won a ranking event. Others in this category are Darren Morgan, Andy Hicks, Ian McCulloch and Joe Swale. Drove up to two consecutive World Semis, so probably is our winner. But a special mention for poor Alain Robidoux, the most famous for the spat with Ronnie, the final paragraph of his Wikipedia page reads. OK, so this is from Wikipedia. Uh, <coughs> Robidoux reached the semi-finals of the 1997 World Snooker Championship, defeating Brian Morgan, Stefan Masrosis and Lee Walker before losing to eventual champion Ken Doherty. He subsequently slid rapidly down the rankings. Robidoux blamed his decline on the destruction of his favourite cue, which he referred to as the eel. When Robidoux returned the queue to the man from whom he had bought it to have it mended, the man objected to Robidoux having fixed a sponsor's logo to the butt and smashed the queue to pieces. Several years later, Robidoux was asked whether the passage of time may have eased his anger towards the queue maker. He responded, I want to kill him. As Luke adds there, poor guy. I'm pretty sure he said that to me, you know. I, I remember interviewing him and he definitely said that, I want to kill him. Um, so that may have been me, but anyway. Yeah, that was rotten what happened to Elaine Robidoux. That was the season after. Um... 
he sent the queue off to get get it mended, and uh, yeah, the, the bloke smashed it into four pieces. Um, and it was never the same again. Went a whole match the next season, actually. Uh, but in terms of your question, I think Darren Morgan actually, you know, possibly of the, of the players you list there, could be the winner because. Um, he won the Irish Masters. He was a top eight player, very tough player, Darren. Still going now in the amateur events, the seniors events. Just loves playing snooker, uh, but he was a, he was a terrific player actually. Um, and so maybe maybe he will be the winner. But if anyone's got any views on that, uh, do let us know. Now then, we uh, we travel to America. Now this this is from Michael Holt, not that one. Uh, unfortunately, Michael, your email has come out a little bit. Um, well, higgledy-piggledy, to use an old-fashioned phrase. There's just a few odd characters. Do your own jokes there. Uh, there's a few odd characters that make it a little bit hard to read. But anyway, he says, Greetings from San Diego. Following your most excellent coverage of UK Judgment Day, and as a regular of the podcast, it's clear there's quite a snooker fan base here in the US. I lived in San Francisco for five years and used to drive an hour south to San Jose, home to California snooker, a real hotbed of talent with four tables run by former US snooker champion... A Jaya Prabarka. So if we ask Michael here, do you know the way to San Jose? The answer is yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, I also visited the Arizona Snooker Academy in Phoenix, which has four superb tournament standard star tables. Here in San Diego, there's not so much. I've found three billiard halls, each of which has a full-size snooker table, but only one has proper snooker cloth. The other two have Naples pool cloth on and exceedingly tight pockets. I know it won't translate well on the pod, but I've attached... I'm sorry, like I said, there's a few glitches in the email, which makes it quite hard to read, but anyway, I'm doing my best. Uh, I know it won't translate well on the pod, but I've attached a few photos for you to see what I mean. Most of play on these tables is a gambling game of golf, but players also play eight ball with full-size balls, uh, two uh, one-quarter in diameter, which makes potting even harder than the usual snooker balls. I've played a few of the regulars at Snooker, and there's growing interest in the game here, fueled in large part to YouTube and all the great channels available there. I wanted to ask if you've considered a Facebook group for your podcast listeners. It would be a great way to connect with fellow Snooker fans, especially those scattered around these United States. You could also live stream the pod when in suitable locations and feature other content photo videos to supplement your wonderful app. But, well, thank you, Michael, but I mean, the idea of me live streaming anything, I mean, you know, I'd need, a, I'd need to go on an open university course to, to find out how to do that. And uh, I, I'm kind of, I, I, I'm not a great fan of Facebook. Um, I know it, it's connected a lot of people, but I'm not a huge fan of that. I'm not on Facebook and I don't really want to be. So uh, although your idea is a good one, uh, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm not a great fan of it. Uh, you, thank you for the pictures. Yeah, I, I can see what you mean. Um, but it's great to have, you know, interest in, in, in these parts of the world. And speaking of which, we have, of course, our correspondent in Canada, David Burney. Uh, he says, uh, sorry for the delay reports from overseas, but snooker history was made in Canada a couple of weeks ago. Ahmed Ali Al-Sayed has become the first US player to hold a snooker tour card. He was also the first American to play in the Crucible Theatre last spring when he played in the World Senior Snooker Championship. Ali won the Pan Am Open Snooker Championship in Toronto, Canada at the Corner Bank, a great room run by John White and Jim White. It's been a dream for this Egyptian who fell in love with the game as a young boy when his dad took him to some exclusive clubs in Egypt and his young eyes were filled with wonder about this great game. Ali works out of the New York Athletic Club and is thrilled to be on the Pro Tour. Another dream is coming true for Canadian Vito uh, Puopolo, I'm going to say that is, who on the senior side of the Pan Am Championships uh, won that title, giving him the chance to represent Canada at the Crucible Theatre this coming spring at the World Seniors Championship. Good luck, gentlemen. 
A dream come true for me as I was able to commentate on a frame of snooker with the great Jim Watch, a true gentleman and great to hear his many stories of the time in England with the game of snooker. Just to jump in there, David, Jim Watch was a, was a terrific commentator for Sky. He formed a, a partnership with Phil Yates for many years and classic example of Jim, I mean, he was twice a World Championship quarter finalist, but he was never a, a sort of big tournament winner. But a classic example, you don't have to be to be a good commentator. He obviously understood the game. He had great passion for it, great voice, and just a good good guy, I think. And, yeah, he was he was terrific on, on Sky's coverage. We're going about 30 years now. But on the snooker, he was terrific. Anyway, David continues. One question I have. Kevin Patrick, who's head referee over here, showed me a great trick with the Peridon ball, with the Peridon ballers for re-spotting balls, say in a foul and miss situation. There is a little notch in these ball markers in the middle. He showed me that you... Take the mark, the make the marker to the cue ball, pull the cue ball away, and then use a tailor's pencil and make a little mark on the table where the notch is. Bring the cue ball back, take away the marker, and play on. If a miss happens, you can take the Peridon marker, line the notch on the ball marker up with the mark on the table, and roll the cue ball in this position. No need to take a lot of time to respot, as the mark is right there. I wonder why professional referees have not applied this theory. I know the technology is there on big events to use the monitors to respot balls, but over in North America, we're not there yet. And this method saves a lot of time and guesswork. Your thoughts? I found that quite hard to follow, what you were saying, actually, but it seems to be you're making a little mark and then you, you know where the ball was. Um, yes, I mean, it, it, I think we can all agree that the, um, the the business with the foul and a miss and the get the screen up and then it's, you know, the to me, to you, Chuckle Brothers Act, that's very archaic. You see some sports, rugby union, cricket, football... You know, they, they, when they have to refer to the video referee, there's a bank of screens and there's all sorts of technology and, you know, they, it's a little bit more advanced. I, I do feel that it can go on a little bit too long, so anything that can speed it up in snooker um, maybe is a good thing. Uh, now, pa- Pavel, Pavel, Pavel uh, has emailed about... Uh, what does he say here? Here's a song that's not related to snooker, but it's cheerful and nice. He obviously mentions one of the greatest snooker scenes. I've just been listening to the podcast and got reminded of it. Now, this is a song called uh, Barbican. So this is why uh, Pavel has uh, thought of it. It's by Keith Hudson and Friends. It's on Trojan Records. I'm going to play a little bit, but not too much, because I don't want to have to pay them. So I'm going to play lit- literally 15 seconds. And, and uh, we pick it up a few seconds in. He's just Keith's just getting going. I've got the girl and she lives so far in. That's plenty. Well, that's uh, that's not about the Barbican Centre in York, but uh, a, a, a perfectly uh, perfectly nice song. Um, <laughs> we're not a, we're not a, a music show necessarily, uh, or even specifically. Now then, uh, I think we'll do one more. We just this just come in actually as I record this. James one. Seeing, we're back to the UK Championship, which is where we started. Seeing Ding's recent performance in the UK Championship final, I can't help feeling that something deep inside Ding is broken. I just think he's never been the same since losing to Selby two years in a row at the World Championships. Those losses were sad, brutal and devastating. What do you think? <laughs> the semi-final one was pretty devastating, I think, because there's something about losing in those semi-finals after four sessions. It was a hard match. Selby makes it a hard match, of course. Um... But he's kind of come good after that. I mean, he's won the UK Championship since then. Um, I think that there's a number of factors with Ding. Most recently, definitely the pandemic. He, he had to spend essentially 10 months away from his wife and child. I mean, it's very, very difficult. Um, 
and he just focused on snooker, but clearly missed them. Then he took a long break in China, which he was entitled to do when he when he was reunited with them, and maybe came back not quite sharp. And you know, it, it, the standard is so high that you, you can lose a bit of edge. He came back, I thought, really well this week. The defeat of Ronnie O'Sullivan speaks for itself. But in general, he's, he's, he's I mean, I did the match with Barry Hawkins the first match. I thought he played really well in that. Um, Obviously, didn't get the job done in the final. He'll be disappointed, but it was good to see him in a final. And I hope, you know, he presses on and we see him back in the top 16 because that's where he belongs. I don't think there's something broken in him, no. I think, you know, on his day, he can he can produce the goods. Some of the events, maybe, it's hard to get absolutely motivated for. One thing, and I've said this on the commentary a couple of times last week, one thing that did him a favour in York at the UK Championship was he didn't have to play in the morning because at the home nations, it seems he's always on in the morning. And the reason for that, of course, is because... Chinese time, it's early evening, and, and television will pay big money to to make sure they see Ding in that uh, in you know in, in that slot. But playing at ten o'clock in the morning every day, I don't think anyone really <laughs> really wants to do. I mean, okay, once or twice, yes, but every time, which seems to be the case for Ding, uh, I'm not so sure about. So, uh, it, it, you know, that that was a good, that was a good thing I think for him uh, last week that he didn't have to play in the mornings. Um, but uh, I think we'll see plenty more of him this season, and I think that he proved. That he's a quality player, and uh, you know I, I, I'm a great fan of his. I think everybody is. Now that's it for this week. Now there'll be no podcast next week. I'm taking a short break, but we return in a fortnight, um, and it's just, uh, a trip. I don't like to say special edition because you know you, you're trying to say we'll be the judge of that, but it's special for me because December uh, this year marks 25 years since I started working in professional snooker. December 1997, I started. And uh, despite uh, what a lot of people might have felt, I'm still going. I've had a variety of roles. I'm very grateful to be continuing um, in the roles that I'm continuing in. And uh, I thought I would do a little look back, but I would like... I'm going to do my own memories of that time, but I would like your memories of the last 25 years. If we go back to December 1997, Ken Doherty was the reigning world champion. At that point, Ronnie O'Sullivan had won one UK championship. None of the class of 92, Ronnie, Mark Williams and John Higgins had won the World Championship. Stephen Hendry was tied on six world titles with Steve Davis and Ray Reardon. Uh, and here's players who hadn't at that point turned professional, OK? Neil Robertson, Sean Murphy, Mark Selby, Judd Trump, Ding Jun Wee, Mark Allen. None of those players, none of those guys had turned professional. Um, because guess what? It was 25 years ago. And actually, if you look at the top 16 now, uh, just looking down the list, I think only the, the Ronnie, Mark and John... I would say Barry Hawkins, Stuart Bingham, they were the only players, so five players in the current top 16 who were professionals back in 1997. So it was a while ago, a lot's happened in that time, good and bad and indifferent, <laughs> and I thought I would uh, sort of look back at my personal moments, but I would like your personal moments. So we start in December 97, right up to the present day, they can be personal in terms of you going to see a particular match you remember, maybe in that time you went to your first snooker tournament, or just finals you remember, matches you remember watching on TV, let us know what has impressed you in that time. Um, and let's keep it positive, you know, good memories, good good, good feelings. Um, yeah, it's it's been, uh, it's been, you know, quite a roller coaster for me. I started at the WPBSA, I, I went freelance, I ended up commentating, and lots of other things in between, not least this podcast. Um, and of course, in that time, the media has changed massively. There was no podcasting back then. Um, I think I'm right in saying Jake Humphrey invented it two years ago. So, yeah. So yes, let us know. Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. 
your memories of the last quarter century. Now, there'll be people li- listening, of course, who weren't snooker fans, maybe weren't alive, actually, <laughs> but 25 years ago. That's fine. But it doesn't have to be starting at 97, but at some point in the last quarter of a century, and maybe what attracted you to snooker. I'm guessing it's usually introduced by a family member, or you see it on television, or whatever it is. Maybe, you know, you just like the look of one of the players, or, or your friend took you along and you got hooked. Whatever it was, let us know your own memories of the last 25 years, and uh, we'll read, uh, i say the best ones, we'll read all of them out if we have to, <laughs> next time. Um, so yes, that's coming up in two weeks, there'll be no podcast next week, um, because I'm taking a break, although the Scottish Open of course will be on uh, Eurosport, we're back, back in uh, Scotland in Edinburgh, uh, one of the fine cities in Britain, and uh, that'll be a good week, we start Monday, but uh, in terms of the podcast, we're having a, a week off, and then we regather, we regroup for tw- uh, 25 years um, memories of the last uh, quarter century. Uh, in the meantime, we're members of the Sports Social Network. They have other podcasts. I'm sure many of them are about the uh, the World Cup, uh, which is which has just begun. Um, we're not a football football podcast, so I'm not going to share my opinions on that. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for all your emails as ever. And uh, as we always say, and we do always say it, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.